You're broke, but you blow a hundred bucks on a dinner you can't afford. Or maybe your colleagues are making more money doing the same job you are, but you don't ask for a raise. You feel like you're bad with money, and your way of coping is to ignore your finances. Sound familiar? It might. These are common behaviors that can lead to feeling something called money shame. Welcome to Stress Test, a personal finance podcast for millennials and Gen Z. I'm Roma Luzio, personal finance editor at The Globe and Mail. I'm Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist at The Globe. Personal finance is all about the things you should do with your money. If you're not doing them, the implication is that you're failing in some way. The introduction of the term money shame is a step forward in helping people master their finances. So what is money shame? How does it affect our financial decisions? And how can we move past it? After the break, we'll ask an expert to explain. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The fund is sustainable with over $500 billion in assets, thanks to CPP Investments. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. Chantel Chapman is a Richmond, B.C.-based financial trauma researcher and educator and the co-founder of the Trauma of Money course. Over 18 years as a mortgage broker, financial literacy consultant, and educator, she realized most financial advice didn't result in lasting change. And that's how she started working with people to address money shame. Okay, so Chantel, what is money shaming? Great question. So first, I'd like to unpack shame and what shame is. Shame is a little bit different than guilt experientially. So shame is like taking on something that maybe didn't go right in your world and making it an, an identity. For example, I racked up credit card debt. Therefore, I am bad at money. And that's really what shame is like versus guilt, which is like, I've racked up credit card debt, probably shouldn't have done that. But in other areas, I'm great at money. And it's not isolated to the way we spend money or the way we invest or the way we don't invest. It could be things like, you know, my inability to ask for a raise or my inability to you know, ask my friend to pay me back that money that I lent them. Or it could also be, you know, I grew up really wealthy and I have a lot of shame about the money that my family has. And I don't feel like that's a representation of my financial portfolio right now. And it's causing a lot of shame for me. Okay. And so if we take that a step further, what is money trauma? So, Financial trauma is trauma that is directly associated with your finances. So some examples of this would be loss of assets, loss of income, uh, severe financial distress for a certain period of time, like maybe longer than three months, domestic financial abuse, inability to retire, growing up in poverty. And then there is trauma of money, which is a more expanded view. And what this is, is the belief that anything that has resulted in trauma in someone's life, even though it has nothing to do with money, can impact the relationship with money. 
And the reason why is because when trauma happens, it's not so much about the experience, but it's about what happens to the nervous system. So something can happen or not happen to someone in their lives. It could result in the nervous system feeling unsafe, insecure, or unworthy. And what does money represent in our society? It represents security and worth. And so we found this link that trauma that happens not associated with money can show up in your relationship with money. Some listeners might think trauma is a bit extreme to describe our relationship with money. That seems like a drastic choice of words. Why do you use that word? Yeah, so we've, we've heard this before. It sort of depends on what their understanding of trauma is. In history, you know, when the research first started being done around trauma, there was a lot of research around PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was said that you have trauma if you experience war. So they started working with war veterans around PTSD. But in the most recent research over the last few years, they've really found out that trauma is not about the external experience, but it's about the reaction in the nervous system. You don't like the word trauma, you don't have to use it. You can basically say, when my nervous system reacts to protect me, my protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. What are some of the common patterns of behavior you see when it comes to people struggling with money shame? So oftentimes the shame is associated with some sort of narrative that we carry. Um, So some of the behaviors that I see that are really uh, consistent with many of the folks that we work with is one, financial avoidance. Financial avoidance can come up for multiple reasons of shame. One of them can be, I'm bad with money, therefore I can't even look at my bank statements or my credit card statements. Um, It could be, I don't feel worthy. There's like a subconscious narrative of worthiness. So they avoid having conversations around money that might result in them earning more. Another layer of financial avoidance would be financial rejection. So this like subconscious rejection of creating wealth or having money. And that can show up in ways of under earning, like I mentioned, or anytime you do get money you spend it very, very quickly. Like it's very hard to hold on to money. Another one would be overspending. Overspending is really an interesting one when it comes to money shame, because typically what we see is we see this cycle and we see the shame arises based on a thought, a belief or behavior. And that usually is something like, I'm not good with money or something around scarcity. And after that shame happens, the person will experience most likely feelings of pain, emotional pain, and fear, because shame in it essentially is the terror of abandonment. And so when we experience that, the nervous system is going to look for ways to soothe that pain Because oftentimes the spending uh, results in an increase in dopamine, which is an increase in pleasure. It's a distraction. It feels good in the moment. We also know through the psychology of scarcity that when someone is in scarcity or they believe that they're in scarcity, that they're more likely to act out on a temptation. And this has to do with things like decision fatigue, bandwidth tax. 
um, and then again leads to more more shame. Hmm. There's so many interesting uh, things I want to dive into. Have you seen any patterns in terms of who tends to experience money shame? I see two main sources. The first source is this narrative of being good or bad with money. It's very much like a this or that thinking type approach. We see that a lot. We see it a lot in financial literacy education. We see it a lot with, you know, financial influencers um, and different experts saying like, here's the steps to be good at money. And if you do this, you're bad. And that narrative is really impactful to many folks because of the society that we live in and also potentially from some of the parenting that we experienced. So one example is um, think of Santa Claus and, you know, Santa Claus naughty list. And we grow up with this message, like be good. The second source of shame that we see all the time. So the first was like this, this or that type thinking of money. The second is our comparison nature. So prior to the internet and social media, we would compare ourselves to the people that we interacted with on a day-to-day basis, right? You know, keeping up with the Joneses. That's like more referring to our neighbors, right? And we would make comparisons that would probably be very similar to like our socioeconomic status. But with the internet, our our comparison has expanded massively. So we've gone from like keeping up with the Joneses to keeping up with the Kardashians, like, you know, like this person is going to Europe this summer and I'm not, and you're like seeing all these different things, all these, this really wide range of wealth. And that comparison leads to a lot of shame. And that comparison can actually fuel that this or that type thinking and can actually fuel some of the advice or pressure that's put on people on how to be good with money and how to be bad with money. Mm -hmm. Especially since um, the social media content that you're seeing is not necessarily the whole truth and is often hiding a reality that's quite different than what it appears. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's a highlight reel of the positive, the thing that we want to show off. Okay, you mentioned avoiding dealing with your finances, overspending? Are there any other sort of typical behaviors or red flags uh, that you see in terms of behavior? Yeah. So hoarding money, hoarding wealth um, is another or excessive risk aversion and underspending. So maybe you have shame around that's connected to this feeling of like undeserving and not wanting to buy yourself things or not wanting to spend your money because there's a fear. Like maybe in your past, you experienced your parent losing a job and money was tight. And now that fear is kind of guiding your interactions with money. So you're living in this very like past negative orientation now in the future. And so anytime you consider spending some of your money, shame arises. So it results, the behavior that happens is underspending or this like hoarding of money. And then the the excessive risk aversion could come from a very similar place. There's such a fear of loss 
And there's a, there's like that, that cloud of potential shame. If you lose money that you never invest your money. Are there any patterns that you see? And I'm really curious to hear about this, um, that are specific to women versus men. Yeah. So one that is, um, I see a lot in financial psychology, they would call the money disorder, financial enabling. And we essentially call it people pleasing with your money or financial codependency. This is my favorite one to talk about because this was me. (laughs) Exactly. And so what it is, is we basically use our money as like a please like me fund. So overspending on clothes or, you know, when I was a mortgage broker making no money, I leased a really expensive car because all the men in my office had these beautiful like four-door sedans. And I'm like, well, I need to have that to be successful. You know, it's like the spending is for this like external validation. And it's not external validation because of, you know, ego, it's external validation for safety, like wanting to fit in. And then another way it can uh, show up is through under earning and, you know, not wanting to ask for a raise or undercharging if you have your own business, um, offering things for free. It could show up in basically giving your children, your adult children, a lot of money. Um, when you maybe don't have it, or maybe it's buying friends dinner because you feel like you'll fit in more if you pay, if you get the bill. And we see this so much with women because women in our society in the past have very, have been very conditioned to be the nurturer, to be the, you know, make everything right and not to not speak up so much about money to please right? And so we see this a lot with women. What about men? What are some of the patterns you see there? We see a lot of shame with men around earning ability and the pressure to be good with money is very, very high. Um, And that comes from the societal narrative of men need to be the breadwinner. And, you know, like a man's value is attached to their, their net worth. Like we see that a lot in some of the narratives that we receive from society. So we notice there's quite a bit of shame. And it's really interesting. Um, if you look at the work that we do, we see 90% women. I've spoken to the men that we see. And I asked them, you know, why do you think this is? And there's this like shame around saying I'm not good with money and I need help because they learned that that was an okay. That's a sign of weakness. Do you see any kind of money patterns, shame or trauma um, for young people, say under the age of 40? Are there any sort of things that jump out at you there? Oh yeah, a lot. So one, the comparison uh, factor that I mentioned earlier So it seems like the comparison is a lot higher, especially for those that are really engaged in internet and social media. Another thing that we see is there seems to be a more awareness around economic marginalization in the world with millennials and younger. And with this awareness of economic marginalization, it's absolutely incredible because we need to have more change makers working towards more economic justice in our world. 
But with that comes this level of shame for creating your own wealth and having your own wealth. And what we often see is a lot of folks who wanted to want to go in these like passion oriented careers where they're helping and they're serving. And what ends up happening is they can develop these unconscious narratives of rejecting money for themselves because they feel this like sense of injustice in the world around the wealth gap and they take it on and they make it apply to them having anything above surviving. And so I see so much shame about, you know, earning well or like treating yourself to something nice because of their deep level of awareness for the societal challenges and pain. Here's a big, big question after having this entire talk. How can listeners, people hearing this, and they're wondering, how can I break a shame cycle? What are are the steps or concrete things you can do? Yeah, I love this question. And we use um, an approach and a theory that comes from the realm of psychology. And we learned about it through uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, who studies um, dopamine and addiction. And this is where the shame arises. And we meet it with radical honesty. So we would say something like, I notice I have shame around this situation. And then we introduce this question and we say, whose shame is this? And that question is really powerful because it helps create separation between ourselves and maybe a narrative that's been placed on us. Maybe this shame comes from something you learned from mother, or maybe it comes from society. We ask that question, whose shame is this? And then from there, we meet that shame with acceptance and compassion. So whether we're hearing someone else share their shame to us, we respond and we say, despite that shame, I hear you, you're still accepted and you're still valuable. And you can practice this with yourself. From that place of acceptance and belonging, we're able to take a different course of action where we just bring in this understanding that things are going to go wrong with our finances. And, you know, when something goes wrong, it doesn't have to become an identity of shame. What's the best case result or outcome for people who work through their money trauma, their money issues, whatever it is we call it? What, what are the potential consequences of doing that? Well, decrease shame and increase discernment. And there's a sense of freedom around your relationship with money. And that freedom will allow you to explore the things that maybe you were avoiding in the past and didn't want to do without a significant impact on your nervous system. You know, we we see folks who like the thought of them sitting down to do a budget gets them so activated where they go into fight, flight, freeze or fawn. And the stress on their nervous system is significant and it can lead to all sorts of health issues. And so to do this work, you get to a point where you have the, the ability to have talk to someone about money, to you know go into a bank and not feel inadequate, to be able to make that investment, to you know ask for a raise, to set boundaries around how much you want to work. All these different things are they, they can arise when we do this work around healing our relationship with money. Chantel, thank you for joining us. After the break, we'll speak with someone who struggled with money shame firsthand. 
CPP Investments is proud to manage the assets of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The Canada Pension Plan provides retirees a solid income foundation. In support of that important priority, we've built a well-balanced and globally diversified portfolio. It's designed to be resilient in the face of wide-ranging market and economic conditions. Through good times and bad, our professional investment teams have helped make CPP a plan that contributors and beneficiaries can count on for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. Our next guest is here to share her experience with Money Shame. So my name is Irina. I'm 31 and I'm from Toronto and I have a background in health policy and health informatics. I think that my experiences with being shamed for the way I manage my money, the way I spend, just any choices that I make, they're reflected in in whatever I do. So I've I found that I have to hide the way I engage with money as much as possible. And uh, as a result, I avoid dealing with the actual problem or seeking support. So I, I think like avoidance is the general result. One of the first times Irina felt money shame was when she went into overdraft in her bank account as a teenager. Her family had immigrated to Canada and had strict rules around spending. Anything that involved spending money it had to be worth it. It had it had to have impact. It was a significant action that was being taken. It was, I was never part of a family that would walk out with like a toy or, you know, something ridiculous that you'll end up tossing in the basement. (laughs) And five years later, there were no souvenirs when you left Canada's wonderland. You were lucky to even go, (laughs) you know? So I did receive support for things that my family deemed were needed, But when it came to extracurriculars, like, you know, going to the movies, spending money on going out, taking the bus, uh, those were things that I paid for. And when my family felt like my money could have been spent differently or better, I was often compared to how they had it harder and they would manage their money better. And actually, I remember having this goal to buy a car. And I forgot about this until right now, actually. So as soon as I could get a job, I did. And even before that, I was babysitting. And I came up with this goal to buy a car and save up for it. And I was really serious. And I thought it was very doable. I probably could have gotten a used car. And then I never did. I never saved up for it because then I started to realize that it costs money to go to the movies or like buy clothes that you think that you need, but your parents might not value. And so I guess I just never saved that money. Here and there, my mom will say, remember when you said you were going to save up for a car? Ha 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 ha. You know, like, look at that. It never happened. So I, I think that's probably the first time that I really felt shame. for not reaching a financial goal which is so sad because I still don't have a car but now I take pride in it because it's very expensive. (laughs) She married young and trusted her husband to manage her money but he was spending big behind her back. They eventually separated but the situation made her feel even more shame. She sought therapy to help her through it. Like I said I don't uh, regret any decisions that I've made. I think 
I've just accepted that there were moments in my life where I was just doing what I was uh, encouraged to do. And that comes from a good place from parents that feared the worst for their kid, but lots and lots of therapy. And that is costly. (laughs) That is a very, very uh, worthy cause. I think spending money on, unfortunately, it's not um, accessible to many people. And I think the reason I am able to have the privilege to talk about the shame I feel about money is because of that you know you have to have the time the energy to have worked through this to be able to speak about this and not think about the consequences yeah it's definitely an investment uh, that I've made and I've had to over time feel comfortable feeling worthy of the expense in itself. Irina also has ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity disorder she said on top of the shame many people feel around having the disorder in the first place being neurodivergent can make money management even more difficult. She recalled a time when she went to Dollarama for a couple of things and wound up spending $100. A lot of the time when I go shopping for something, it's when my mood is impacted in a way where, you know, I feel really anxious or stressed. It's a distraction and I'm going there hoping to get that immediate dopamine hit and bring home you know, stationary supplies that will help me organize those receipts or um, organize my space. And so it's a small change, but then you think, uh-oh, there's like this huge setback financially where I've just spent a hundred bucks on a bunch of binders or sheet protectors or things that are obviously not going to result in any change unless you actually use the tool. It's very momentary and definitely results in feeling some kind of rush or dopamine hit, but it doesn't mean that it's going to result in a positive long-term change. I made the most irresponsible decision I felt earlier this year with investing into coaching. And I felt so, so much shame. I cannot put it into words how much shame I felt. I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I did not want to tell anybody that I had paid for this ADHD coaching program. And I had listened to the podcast for years and thought, there's no way I'm going to pay thousands of dollars to join a coaching group. And then I did. I spent at least $2,000 for sure. It would have been like about $2,500. Irina realized the course wasn't for her and managed to get her money back. For her, talking about money helps alleviate the shame. I think that the first step to moving forward is recognizing that I am worth spending money on. I think the advice that I would give is to uh, talk about it. The only way you can get support to move forward is by talking to someone. It doesn't have to be in a a public way, um, but a friend that you trust, someone who can create a safe space for you to talk about these things. They may not be an expert, but they can help make a connection. If you have people to talk to about these experiences, you can get through it. Um, So it comes back to what I had said before, being able to talk about the shame because it doesn't have to be so lonely. We tend in personal finance to talk about what success looks like, saving lots, keeping debt under control and making big investment returns. It's normal to feel shame if you're not living up to these standards. Even personal finance columnists feel it from time to time. I hope this episode helps people feel more comfortable with themselves and willing to ask for help. Roma, what are your takeaways from these conversations? 
One, money shaming is rampant and a major contributor to financial and life stress. If you're doing the shaming, stop. And if you're feeling embarrassed about your finances, know that you're not alone. Two, talking openly about money is the first step. Learning about it is the second. If you're intimidated, start by making small changes. Even diverting a few hundred dollars into a savings account each month can make a difference. Three, remember that your finances do not have to be perfect. It's okay to make mistakes. Creating a secure financial future is a journey, one that's never too late to start. Thank you for listening to Stress Test. This show was produced by Kyle Fulton, Emily Jackson, and Zara Kazema. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thanks to Chantel Chapman and Irina for joining us. You can find Stress Test wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Next up on Stress Test, the cost of dating. With inflation on the rise, single people are more likely to grab a coffee than an alcoholic beverage. We talk about the cost of swiping right as we settle in for another long winter. Until then, find us at theglobeandmail.com. And thanks for listening. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. Canadians can be confident in the fund's sustainability. In the last 10 years, CPP Investments has earned more than $300 billion for the Canada Pension Plan. With over $500 billion invested around the world, CPP is set to provide a retirement income foundation for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com.